it's quite clear from Paul's language that we have turned a corner, that we've started a new life as we enter into Romans 8, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, one of the issues, and we'll get to this as we work through it, but one of the issues in helping us understand Romans, understanding the language in our modern day self, is that in order to find a translation that helps us to understand, sometimes those translations can fall short. Remember, every translation of the Bible is an interpretation. So when you are reading something, when you're reading NIV or ESV or uh, King James Version, all of those things are interpretations uh, that someone else has written down, who went through the Greek, who went through the Latin, who went through the Hebrew, who went through the Aramaic, and said, I think this word means this at this time. So when we get to a, a version like we're reading today in New Living Translation, this is more of a paraphrase. This isn't a word-for-word -word translation. Um, and we can talk about that later if you want to. But one of the things that this one misses is that it misses an important phrase. Um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is the traditional way to understand this. And we're going to talk about what that means to be in Christ Jesus but in order to trade that off, we have to find a better translation, something that we can read and understand, so that when Paul is bringing us the good news of the gospel, and we look at that and say, I don't understand what that means. How is this good news for me? We can read a translation like this and say, yes, I'm now starting to get this. Romans is very, very difficult to read, but it's very powerful when we understand how it relates to us. And so in the first step, Paul talks about how we have become set free. There's this problem of condemnation, and condemnation is a word that really kind of falls flat in our world. It's something that we don't use a lot anymore. We might look at a building in the city, and it might be condemned. We might look at condemned land, where it can no longer be lived in. It is dead to the world. There's no life left in it. A condemned building is doomed to sit there. It can't house anything any longer. And in actuality, the word condemnation means to sentence someone to a particular punishment. And in this case, the punishment is death. If we condemn a house, we say it's no longer fit to live in. And when we condemn a person, we say there's no longer life in them. They are no longer fit to live. They can sustain no life in it. But Paul brings us the good news. Paul says, here's the gospel as it's been presented to us now, that there's no longer a sentence of death. There is no longer a place where we roam through the city and there is dead buildings. We are no longer dead people. We no longer have this sentence of death on our lives. And it's really difficult to believe this good news. It's really difficult to understand what this means for our lives. It's difficult, but it's not impossible to believe. Difficult does not mean impossible. It means it's hard to wrap our brains around what it means to bring new life into a condemned building. It's difficult to understand how this could travel all this way through the centuries to our lives here, but it, it's not impossible to believe it. 
Because to believe it is to reorient our lives toward a power greater than ourselves. To believe it is to say, here's my new perspective. Here's how I am now living my life in a new way. As I'm no longer faced with that sentence of condemnation. As I'm no longer living with that sign on my building, on my door that says, condemned. Do not live. There's no life. We reorient our lives in this belief. Even more, it's to have our lives reoriented by a power that's greater than any power we know in this world. Perhaps the greatest power we know in this world is the power of death. Death is the strongest power in this world. And so we rely on a power that is stronger than death. We rely on a power that is not of this world. Death ultimately conquers all of us and everyone we know, everything that we see, death touches. And this wasn't the plan from the very beginning. This wasn't the idea that all of creation should just fall apart. But humans have that problem of death, the problem of condemnation, the problem of sin. Death's power is not simply at the moment of our dying. It is a power that creeps into our lives, our communities, our bodies, long before the moment that we breathe our last. We see it in our communities. We see it in our own bodies that death just creeps in. And there are scientists and, and hospitals and communities across the globe, and you can read about these in the newspaper, in your, in your news scrolls, in your Facebook feeds. Scientists have learned to cheat death, to reverse Aging. <laughs> and we laugh at that. Because you cannot stop it. There was only one person that stopped it. And that was Jesus through the power of God and his resurrection. And the best that we can hope for is a revivification. A reanimation. Because even on this side of the grave, we're still going to die. No matter how many no, no matter how many blueberries we eat, no matter how many pomegranates we have, no matter how much exercise we get, death comes for us. We slow it, but we don't stop it. Now, I am not standing up here saying, don't eat blueberries, don't exercise. Those are important things to do. We need to do those because we want to live a good life. We want to live a healthy life as long as we can. We praise God as long as we can in this life. But we fool ourselves as we think that we can overcome it by our own means. And so by sin, Paul does not mean individual moral failings. He doesn't mean that we're living with sin because oh, we swore to drive around the road or we forgot to tithe or you know, we didn't say a blessing before the dinner or we did these individual things as people. This is not the sin that Paul is talking about here. And a lot of times we read this through the lens of individualization. We read this through, oh man, I am a, a poor sinner because I uh, got angry this week or I did something bad or I, I lied or I stole something from God that was really his and should have been someone else's. I didn't give to the homeless person I saw or I didn't stop and help that person on the side of the road. That's individual sin and Paul's not talking about those things. He's talking about 
a sin that is much larger, much more pervasive. It's a sin that decrodes all of life. It rips apart the very fabric. Our relationships suffer because of sin. Our creation around us suffers because of sin. Our bodies suffer because of sin. And it's not something that we can go and say, God, please forgive me on all of this stuff. That takes away our individual sin, but there is nothing that stops the sin of this world except one thing. That we give our allegiance to and are thus formed by God or what is not of God. If we're not obedient to God, we are living in the realm of death, even in this life. But we've just decided, hey, I know that there is something that overcomes death. I know that there is something that means life for us. I know that there is something that brings all of this together, that redeems our bodies, that stops this rusting of the world. But that maybe not, it's not for me. I want to pledge my allegiance to the things that are formed by God, to the things of God. Paul is speaking of what is true for those who are in Christ. It's that important word, to be in Christ. I have faith about Christ, but when I am there, am I living in him? There is a freedom in Christ that comes in all these things. And the question is, how then are we supposed to believe this nearly unbelievable thing? How are we supposed to dream the impossible dream? How are we supposed to put ourselves out there? The key is found in this tiny phrase, in Christ Jesus. Because to be in Christ is to be part of something far larger than ourselves. Because we as people can look at this and say, I can build something. I can build a church and then the church can get together and say, we can do this together. We're part of the community and the community can come together and repair bridges and repair parks and, and, and be part of a, a, a renewal of the community. And the nation can come together and say, let's renew all of these things in the best way that we know how. And all of those things fall flat because they don't have the word in Christ with them. Because what we're building, we build together, we build in Christ. That we cannot be a community unless we are a community in Christ first. That this church does not exist, this community of believers does not exist unless it exists in Christ. That we can't do anything by ourselves. That we can't remain independent. We have to always look at everything through the lens of being in Christ. What does it mean to live in Christ together? It's to encounter a power that's astronomically greater than the sum of all of our willpower that we've ever mustered. Add it to all the physical power we've ever exerted. Add it to all the societal clout that you've ever had. It's far beyond that. The sum of all of our parts, it's still greater and greater and greater than that. To be in Christ is to be swept up in the power of the Spirit and to be free from what has bound us, limited us, tied us. 
that what we can accomplish as a church is very, very limited. Unless we feel like we are free in Christ, that we have been freed from the world to unveil to the world what it means to be free and what it means to live in Christ. To be in Christ is not the result of something we do. It is something God does for us. It's not something we obtain. It's not something that we sit here, we go out into the world, we're in our cars, praying, talking, doing these little things together as a community. We don't obtain in Christ. And that's maybe the best news of all. Because in Christ means we've been given a gift. We've been given a way to live that is opening and freeing. Not just for us, but for the world around us. For the people in our lives who can look at us and say, Wow, that, I understand, is the best way to live. That is the way to do things there. Paul does not tell the reader to get his or her act together and get in Christ. He doesn't give us a checklist to say, here are the steps to be in Christ. Here's the best way forward. If you want to be in Christ, I give you a list of things now to do. No, he's talking to believers and he's saying, you now are in Christ already by the very fact that you believe, by the very fact that you have reoriented your lives to Christ. You are there. You are in it because it was a gift to you. By this tiny phrase, in Christ, Paul has said that we are not constrained by our limitations, our shortcomings, our failings. Amen? We are not even condemned by our cruelties, our hurtful ways, our hateful actions. Instead, we are free. We're free from death. We're free from this life that is an empty way of doing things. We're free from the meaninglessness of all things. Instead of life being empty, instead of life being devoid of things, think about what we said last week. We didn't get rid of work, but we created a work in Christ that has now meaning. And so the things that we work for on this earth are meaningless unless we work for them in Christ. And we can reach all of these things because we are free. We are free for life which is the second point that Paul wants to make. We're set free for life. Now, the law had its limitations. Paul believed that we were all obedient to something. He believed that we were all creatures of our environment. If we're not obedient or slaves to God and God's ways, we were slaves to sin or whatever is not of God. And so Paul reminds us, hey, listen, this is, this is a really important thing that we're talking about here. Because Christ has come as one of you to set you free from the very thing that has been holding you back to be able to worship God. According to his argument up to this point, sin is a power that resides in the world and in us. This power or force makes it impossible to follow God and even to follow the law. It brings estrangement from God, from others, and from God's creation. 
Now, a lot of people wonder, what does the law mean? What is that word that Paul is talking about? It's talking about the Torah. It's talking about Torah law, Jewish law, intended to give people life and to keep them in right relationship with God. You see, it's our own heart's way of earning our way to God. It's our checklist of things that says, all right, I'm going to keep this law. I'm going to do all the things that Leviticus told me to do with the doves and the blood and the, the show of the sacrifice. And these things no longer work. These things no longer keep us in right relationship with God. It's idolatry in that fact. When we think that we can earn our way to God, when we think that we can do all of these things on the checklist, it's idolatry. We put something in place of God and his grace and his good gift. Idolatry is anything we do or say or try to be to make ourselves acceptable to God and to win God's favor. And for the overachieving Christian, it might be understood as our efforts to win an A-plus from God. Good work. You did great. A-plus this week. You hit all the points. I'm going to be here with you for the rest of the day. Paul's argument condemns this. Notice how we were condemned, and now also the law is condemned in all of this. Our thinking about the law is condemned. We cannot do anything to earn God's favor or blessing. There is no way to earn our salvation. Rather, salvation is true life, both now and in the life to come. They are a gift. The law could not set human feet upon the rock of eternity and rid them of the sentence of death which has been pronounced over them. No religion is capable of altering the fact that the behavior of men is a behavior apart from God. All that religion can do is expose the complete godlessness of human behavior. I talk to atheist people all the time. Some of my friends are atheists. And they say, well, I just don't like religion. I'm just not a religious person. I say, good, neither am I. Religion doesn't save us. This coming together and doing religious things is not part of who I am, my identity. My identity is Christ. I'm in Christ. That's what sets me apart from other things. We don't do this memorization. We don't do this Holy Spirit move me so that I can move the world. We come alongside the Holy Spirit and say, I have been empowered as a gift to join in what the Holy Spirit is already doing, has already met in this place. I desire that relationship not religion. And so Paul finishes up, he says, this is a righteousness that we all share. This is what we've all come together to do, together. And in this place, we do it together. Paul says in verse 4, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Not you, not me, but he did it so that we all could be saved. And the open invitation of grace, and the open invitation of the love of God. He says, come on now. I did this because I loved the world completely. I could have said another book. 
I could have set another set of laws, but you would continually fail to live up to that. So I sent a son to do the thing you couldn't do for yourself. And that very law that I sent earlier is what killed my son for your life, for your lives, for the whole world. What God has accomplished through Christ is the freedom truly to live. Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. We have the possibility of life and peace. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine that you wanted to start painting. You thought that might be a nice way to get some relaxation, to calm yourself a little bit. Maybe it's a, a great artistic outlet, maybe a good endeavor. But you don't want to paint in a beginner's way. You don't want to do paint by numbers. You don't want to do, you know, follow along with Bob Ross at home. You want to do Michelangelo. You want to do ceiling stuff. Like you want to, you just want to be out there doing it immediately. No matter how many lessons you take, no matter how many Bob Rosses you watch, no matter how much you practice, no matter how hard you try, you will not paint ceilings like Michelangelo. Even if you're very gifted, even if uh, painting is your passion, your calling, you get really, 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 really good. You'll only create a facsimile, a fake representation of his artwork. The only possible way to paint like Michelangelo is to be... Michelangelo. And of course you can't do that either. You can't be Michelangelo unless the spirit of Michelangelo is to live within you. Then and only then could you create such beauty. And this is how we live with the spirit. That we can read through it and we can practice and we can try as hard as we can, but we will never create the beauty and grace and love that is in Christ unless we are Christ. And the good news is, even though we can't become Michelangelo, Michelangelo's spirit has not entered my body, the spirit of Christ is with us. We can be in Christ because the Spirit dwells in us. And this is the only way that we can see the Master at work. This is the only way that we can bring the love of Christ to the world. Through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about. Hush becomes that life in Spirit. The hustle is our life trying to do it together? Hustle and hush. When we get in a sailboat, we don't sit there and blow with our own wind the sail. That's a ridiculous amount of work. It's a waste of energy. What we do is we sit back and we let the wind enter the sail. We let the wind expand to use the power of the wind to move the boat. And so if we try in our lives to blow and blow and blow and try and work out for ourselves the direction, we will fail. The boat will not move at all and will look ridiculous in the process. But what we do is we sit back and we open our sail and we say, Holy Spirit, come to me now. Move this 
boat. Move this body for good. Dwell in me so that I can be in Christ. And together we can move this world. This freedom is unbelievable. But it's not completely unbelievable. It's freedom given to us to go beyond our limitations. It's the freedom of being part of God's movement with the world that transcends our locale and our lifetime. This freedom does not transport us out of our bodies into the great beyond to the pearly gates. Instead, it frees us to live fully in this world. We don't say, Holy Spirit, dwell with me. I want to be in Christ so that I may be in heaven one day. We say, Holy Spirit, dwell in me so I can be in Christ and be fully present in this place to the world around you, that my eyes and my ears are open to your needs, to your love, to your grace, to your great creation, which is falling apart. It gives us over to this life where we can live fully here. This freedom is ours in Christ, and it's the result of the power of God, a power greater than the sum of all the powers combined. Just this to reflect on as we close this morning. Jesus and his teachings are not a helpful additive. It's not an addition to our lives, like protein powder in a fruit smoothie from Jamba Juice. We can't just add it and sprinkle it on to the rest of our life and say, this is my life that I'm going to live, and Jesus is just going to go over top of it and make everything good. No. Jesus the Messiah is the one who breaks through everything that separates us from God and makes it possible to live the life God intended for us. It's a life lived in right relationship with God and others and the whole of creation. Through Jesus' resurrection, God is able to triumph over sin and death and provide a solution, an otherworldly solution to the central problem of the human condition, separation from God and others and our sin.